We've uh, just sung Psalm 54. We'll now spend some time looking at it in a little bit more detail. Um, As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, we're starting, recommencing our regular psalm series for the summer, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. Uh, We're picking up where we left off uh, last September, the end of September, with Psalm 53. Uh, As I mentioned a few moments ago, last summer was a short series due to um, what preceded and what was going to follow, but this summer, it looks like uh, June, July, and August, we'll be able to spend in the Psalms. Um, today, in particular, and possibly uh, next week, we may uh, spend a little bit more time just thinking about the Psalms in general um, before we move into Psalm 54. I hope um, it'll help all of us um, remember and, and reflect a bit on the Psalms. Um, now, the Psalms. Um, occupy or or should occupy an important place both in the corporate worship of the church and in the all-of-life worship of of the Christian. These psalms are songs, 150 of them, uh, divided into five books. We we believe that division kind of parallels the five books of Moses. And and the psalms are at once um, familiar And yet they're foreign. Uh, They were written over a period of 1,200 years from 15th century B.C. to the 3rd century um, B.C. Um, They're songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. In other words, it's a hymn and prayer book for the church. Uh, Martin Luther reflected on the Psalms and said that the Psalms were a little Bible. Basically, everything from Genesis to Revelation could be found in one way or another in the Psalms. As you know, the Psalms are diverse. They're they're different, but yet they're united because they're centered on the one true and living God. And and they express in particular more so than I think any other book in the Bible, kind of the the divine human encounter. The, The Psalms look different. They're poetry. And what do you do with a poem? You slow down. You you. In, in slowing down and reading and thinking reflectively, um, our intellects is informed, our emotions are aroused, our imaginations are stimulated, and our wills are directed. And when we read the Psalms by faith, we come away not just informed, we come away transformed. Now, the church doesn't need exclusive Psalmody. Some churches believe that you only are to sing the Psalms. No, we believe in inclusive psalmody. In other words, including the Psalms, not just during a summer psalm series, but throughout the rest of the Lord's day. We, we do sing psalms because, again, psalms promote worship, corporate worship and all of life worship. Worship that is biblically grounded and guided, that's God-focused, that's Christ-centered, and that's spirit-enabled. Psalms, I hope we will see more and more, are a precious treasure for the church. And we we neglect them to our detriment. 
and we pay attention to them to our great benefit, helping us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now here, on the Lord's Day, it's the first day of the, of the week, and I've got a few questions to ask. Is your tank on empty right now? I'm not talking about your, your car's gas tank. I'm talking about you. Do you feel like you're on empty right now? I got good news. The Psalms will help us refuel. Um, are you lost? Well, I can't be lost. I know exactly where I am. But no, are your thoughts scattered? The Psalms will help us return. Again, if you're scattered, the Psalms will help us refocus. We see corporate worship on the Lord's day reorients us and realigns us. What do I mean? Worship as reorientation. In the case of false gods, it moves us away from our idols and to the one true and living God. Worship is realignment. When we have the one true and living God as our object, but we worship him falsely. Corporate worship helps move us toward the worship of God as he asks us to worship him. You see, corporate worship serves to move us away from our idols to God and to worship him with the motive and the manner that he himself has declared and demanded. As I mentioned a moment ago, I want to say again, the Psalms are a precious treasure for the church and for each and every Christian. In his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin said this, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught in this book. There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. I believe uh, in the weekly preparing for worship email, I had a, a longer um, quote from him on this very thing, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. You see, the Psalms, as he rightly recognizes, are a great help for both prayer, that is asking God, and, and praise, uh, giving to God. The Psalms as an anatomy of the soul, they open us up to help us see what's inside. It gives us a language to use. But not only do they open us up, but they're also, as others have said, medicine for the soul that can close us up, that can heal us. The Psalms give us words that we can speak when we desire to pray to God and when we desire to praise God. The Psalms give us a language to express ourselves to God. And that's what we see here in Psalm 54. This Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of lament. It's one of the briefest Psalms of lament. It's, it's short and it's typical. And I'm thankful of all the Psalms that we were to restart our series on. We land here on Psalm 54. Look with me at the title that's there uh, right above verse 1. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? You heard from our Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel 23, 
David was hiding from Saul among the Ziphites. And the Ziphites, instead of protecting David, they reveal his location to Saul. Now, it's one thing to be treated badly by by those you would know to be your enemies. It's, It's another thing. It's a deeper pain when you're being betrayed, when your location is being revealed by your friends. You see, David is being rejected by men of his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. And what, he, what had he done previously? He had rescued one of their towns from the Philistines. And this is how he's repaid? It's a psalm of lament. And lament seems to be a missing element in, in worship of, of the church. Maybe not in China, not in Ukraine, not in North Korea, not in Nicaragua. But maybe in the United States that's enjoyed a relative level of comfort and affluence for quite some time. Lament is missing. As we go further in the Psalms, we'll be once again faced with that question. What can miserable Christians sing? It's one thing to sing when you're happy and full of joy and thankfulness. But what do you sing when you're miserable, in distress, in danger, the Psalms. So let's move into Psalm 54. And I want to begin by asking a question. What is one thing that many people are hesitant to ask for? What is one thing that many of us, either standing here or sitting here, are hesitant to ask for? It's one thing that is needed in many situations, but it's not requested. In fact, this one thing is one word. Help. Now, before I was born... Back in the summer of 1965, there was a song that came out of the United Kingdom and it started like this. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. You see, this song and this sermon share a title. Help. Of course, that's the Beatles. Help, not just from anyone or someone, but help from God. Join with me as I read Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph. 
on my enemies. So Psalm 54 begins with prayer and it ends with praise. And in the middle between these two bookends, it provides a needed perspective. So let's look at the first two verses. Prayer. It's a cry to God. It's a, it's a petition for deliverance. Um, oh God, save me. Save me. It's a cry for help. It's a most basic prayer. I used to think, you know, have mercy on me was the shortest prayer in Scripture. You know, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy is a great prayer, but so is the one word prayer. Help, save me. Oh God, save me. In fact, uh, I think it's either the New Living Translation or the Message, which aren't literal word for word, but they're kind of getting the gist. I think it translates verse one. Oh God, help. Oh God, save me. By your name and vindicate me by your might. God's might, David recognizes, is greater than the strength of his enemies. He is near and he is powerful. So it's a cry for help. Oh God, save me. But it's also a plea for justice. Notice how verse 1 continues and vindicate me, give me justice. By your might. You see, David was being wrongly regarded and treated as a treasonous person. You know, treason has a very specific definition. I think that word is thrown out a bit. You know, you just don't like somebody and you say they're treasonous. No, treason as a law is very specific. But I think we all know what treason is. And David, who's trying to do the right thing, he, he is being viewed as treasonous against King Saul. But he leaves his vindication to God. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. If you were to continue reading in 1 Samuel, the next chapter, you've got David and his men hiding in a cave and Saul and his men coming into the cave. And in the dark, David's men tell David, ha, God has delivered Saul into your hands. You can, you can do away with him. And what does David do? No, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. But he did slice off a corner of Saul's robe. And later he presents it to Saul and David acknowledges that he, he, he wasn't going to take um, Saul's life. No, that was up to God. He was not in the place of God. And even Saul at that moment recognized it. Even says to David, you are better than I am. Why? Because David is saying, vindicate me, God, by your might. You, God, exact vengeance, not me. I mean, you think of ahead to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Peter, and Peter is speaking of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, the forerunner 
of our Lord Jesus here, King David, or not yet King David, but soon to be King David, he is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Vindicate me. Save me. Vindicate me. And notice how verse 2, oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. He, he is bold because really verse 2 doesn't need to be there. But no, it's just asking God to hear the prayer, to give ear. It's, it's, it's a way of repeating that's highlighting. It's putting it in bold. It's using italics. It's boldness before God. I mean, has God promised to hear prayer, as Rob mentioned, to answer prayer? Yes. So on, on the one level, when we pray to God, we know he hears. We know he listens. But here is David modeling going before the Lord with boldness. Lord, hear my prayer. Give ear. I mean, are, are we to be that child that sort of doesn't take no for an answer that we keep on Begging, pleading, listen to me. Well, Jesus has something to say about that in some of his parables, right? Of persistence in prayer. Now in verse one, we flew right by something that we're now gonna circle back to. By your name. Oh God, save me by your name. When David says that, he is bringing to bear who God is and what God does, his name, the name represents the person, the character of the person, uh, the, the um, competence of the person. If you look at uh, 1 Samuel 25, 25, it talks about Nabal, Abigail's wife. Remember where Abigail basically saved her husband from getting destroyed by um, David's men? Nabal, as it says, the name means fool. Your, your name means something. And David is praying, oh God, save me by who you are, everything that you are, the name that you revealed to Abraham, the re name you've revealed to Moses. And we'll see that progression in a moment. Here is prayer there's a sovereignty he is entrusting himself that God is mighty to save that he is mighty to vindicate it's he's trusting in God's sovereignty but he's also taking responsibility he is praying he's praying according to the revealed nature of who God is he's he's as it were, praying God's attributes back to him. It's praying God's word back to him. So, these first two verses are, are a prayer. A cry for help and a plea for justice. And what prompts his prayer is his situation. In particular, his perspective on the situation. He, he looks around and he looks up. So let's consider now the perspective that David presents in his psalm. And we see that in verses three through five. First, there's the horizontal perspective. Who are they? We read in verse three, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. 
David's in a crisis and he's describing the crisis. He's describing the character of his opponents and he calls them strangers. And this is really odd. Why? Because they are his fellow tribesmen from the tribe of Judah. And yet they are acting like ruthless aliens. They're acting out of character. Derek Kidner, a commentator, writes this. Those who had betrayed David were opportunist, standing for no principle, suiting their color and shape to the moment. When I read that, it was like a chameleon, right, who blends in with the surroundings. These men are thinking right now it's more important to be loyal to Saul than to David. Saul will reward us for turning David over, for revealing his location. They are ignoring God. Notice the strangers, these ruthless men from the tribe of Judah, they do not set God before themselves. They are even though it can't be done in one sense, they are ignoring God. But but David doesn't just look to the horizontal. He, He doesn't just look around. He also looks up. He looks up to the vertical. Who are you, God? And we move into verse four. Behold, he says, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. It's a description of of God, his character. Whereas before, these, these strangers are ignoring God, David is paying attention to God. He is not ignoring him. Verse four is this statement of confidence in God. And instead of looking around for someone or some group to protect him, as he does in all of his Psalms, he looks up. He looks up to God. You see his eyes, they go up. They don't go out. I mean, at the literal center, verse 4 of this psalm is a confession of confidence. It, It centers the psalm. But notice as we continue in verse 5. He, that is God, will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Not only God, who are you? He's my helper. He's the upholder, the sustainer of my life. Not only that, but what will you do, God? And again, who are you? We read in these words that God will ensure that evil's self-destructive tendency will be fulfilled. It, it, that he is he's confident that God will see people reap what they sow. Evil will come back. It's the boomerang aspect of sin. What what goes around comes around. And it's not karma. No, it's it's something built into the law of the harvest. You you reap what you sow. These strangers, these ruthless men are, are sowing evil. And it will come back on them. He looks at God as being the faithful one who will put an end to them. So the psalm began with prayer, 
But the middle three verses are, are perspective, both a horizontal perspective and a vertical perspective. So we all have a perspective on life and we all have lenses through which we view things. So before we move on, let's just ask ourselves, what's our perspective on life? What do we see on the horizontal level? What do we see on the vertical level? What are the lenses that you wear to see things? David knows he's been anointed by Samuel. He, he knows that the kingdom is going to be taken from Saul and given to him. And he knows that he's not going to do that of his own ingenuity and his own purpose and plan, but he's going to wait for the Lord to act at his time. So he, he knows God has promised. And he's going to wait for God to fulfill his promise because God is faithful. He is going to trust every promise that God has made. So is your perspective one of seeing Life through the promises of God? Or is it some other lens? Well, as is the case with, with many psalms, uh, the words move from prayer to praise. And, and you'll notice that as the psalm wraps up, as it ends, as it concludes, that there's going to be a change in, in tone and a change in, in tense. Um, we read in verse 6, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He's praising God, first of all, in verse 6, for who God is. He's not bargaining with God. He's not making a deal with God. It's a spiritual response to divine goodness. It's it's spontaneous. It's not a quid pro quo. God, I will praise you if you deliver me. No, he's so confident. He's made a confession of confidence. He's praising God. He's going to offer a free will offering and a sacrifice. The details of that, we don't know. He stood by God's name earlier in his prayer, and now he praises God's name. And notice in verse 6, before it was God and now it is Lord, the all capital Lord, the, the Yahweh Lord, the covenant name, I am who I am, I am, no beginning, no ending, the self-existent one and the one who has decided that I will be your God and you will be my people. Your name, O Lord, for it is good. You see, he knows that God's grace is not only mighty, but his grace provokes generosity. He praises God for who he is, and he praises God for what he has done. Look at verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble. It's, it's the Lord's name in action the saving name it is good he's delivered me from every trouble 
And not only that, but we see that tension in the text, but it's also a confidence we see. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. What? How did it go from future, you know, God save me, vindicate me, hear my... How did it go from that to he has delivered me and my eye has looked? It's a change in tone and it's a change in tense. It's as good as done. Why? Because his perspective is the promises of God. Every promise that God has made will be fulfilled. It's, it's looked in triumph on my enemies, not gloated in triumph, not gloated in arrogance. So sure is David of final deliverance from all evil. He can speak of it as if it's already come. One of the things that we're learning in our study of the book, Gentle and Lowly, is we are as secure now in Christ as we ever will be. There's not going to be some magical change between this life and the next life. What's going to happen is we're no longer going to be sinful. We're going to have that, un, that assurance that's untainted by sin. He is so sure he writes as if it's already taken place. It's attention to be sure, but it's also confidence. So in prayer, David pleads the promises. And in praise, he gives thanks for the promises. And this psalm, of course, doesn't just stand by itself alone and isolated. It points forward beyond itself. You see, as we wrap this up and we ask ourselves, what are we to take away from Psalm 54? We need to first look to Jesus. Because David wrote and sang this psalm, God's people through the years has sung this psalm and we a few minutes ago sang this psalm but the the true singer of this psalm is is Jesus remember after his resurrection he tells his disciples that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures you see, David, excuse me, Jesus sang this psalm, and we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, these amazing words. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Can you see Jesus? praying this prayer as he heads to the cross oh god save me by your name vindicate me by your might he entrusted himself to him who judges justly jesus prayed jesus had the right perspective you read through the gospel of john and you see in jesus's 
conversation, his prayers with his father. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and ask for help. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says it really clearly, doesn't he? You do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says to his disciples, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Look to Jesus and ask for help. In 2 Chronicles 20, 12b, we read the, these words. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, God, but we're going to look to you. And how do we look to God? How do we walk by faith? How do we look to God? No, we pray to God. That's how we look to him. We look to his word. We, we speak to him. We listen to him. We look to him. We look to Jesus and we ask for help. And who are we asking for help from? The one and only Savior. Remember the father of the boy. We read it a moment ago in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. Not help it get stronger. Not help my unbelief to get stronger. No, help my unbelief to get weaker. When was the last time you prayed for weakness? When was the last time you prayed for something to decrease, not increase? Help my unbelief. Don't make my unbelief better. Make my unbelief worse. David at the end says, he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You see, my friends, if you are in Christ, if you have received and are resting upon Christ alone by, for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, if you have received and are resting on Christ alone by faith, if you're in Christ, you've already been delivered from the one enemy who could really do you harm. Satan, the one who brings sin and death, to us. You see, Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. Jesus has triumphed over Satan. You see, the promised day will come when you can say with David, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies, my enemies of sin and death. You see, my friends, ultimately our enemies are up against God, not us. And King Jesus subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies.
My friends, every promise that God has ever made is yes and amen in Jesus. Look to him. Ask for help, knowing that he is the one and only Savior. And he is yours by faith. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of this psalm. We thank you, Father, for these words of prayer, of perspective, of praise. Father, we thank you that when we cannot think of one word as to how best to speak to you, we can turn to your word and we can pray this to you. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Would you enable us more and more, both individually as families and as this corporate body, enable us to cry out for help from you, knowing that you will provide what we need, for we pray in Jesus' name.